0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel within the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beatty. I'm one of the hosts of this channel, and I'm joined today by Kasia Bartoszinska, who is the author of Estranging the Novel Poland, Ireland, and Theories of World Literature. Dr. Bartoszinska, Bartoszinska is also a professor at Ithaca College, teaching in the English literature department and in Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies, and is also a very active translator. Um, Mainly today, we're going to talk about your book. Welcome, Kasia. Thank you. Um, So your book offers a very, very innovative way of thinking about Irish and Polish prose writing and where these two countries fit into a broader global history of the novel. Could you begin by just explaining all that?
1: (laughs) Sure. Um, So I I find that every time I, I talk about the book's argument, I end up explaining how sort of the process of writing and how I came to it. Um, because the book began as a as a PhD dissertation um, and in a comparative literature program, and it began with my sense that there is this odd similarity between Polish and Irish literature, that the two kind of strongly resemble each other, um, both in terms of the kind of actual works of literature, but also in terms of the way that they are discussed in literary criticism or literary history. And in particular, what I was struck by was that there are various ways... um, you know, and as I imagine your readers will be more familiar or listeners will be more familiar mm-hmm. with the Irish studies side, which is that there are all kinds of ways that Irish literature sees itself as unique and anomalous and having features that are, are totally different from other European literary traditions. Um, and often in the Irish literature class that I was first taking in graduate school, um, the professor would say, you know, and here's this moment where we see the kind of uniqueness of Irish fiction. And I would think, oh, but, but Polish fiction does this too. Right. So it's, it was not only a similarity between the two traditions, but also specifically a similarity in the very features that they perceived as being anomalous or unique that I was really struck by. Um, and so I, I essentially began by wanting to think more about that. Um, and I, I initially kind of pondered whether, you know, the answer is that these are both kind of, um, at the margins of Europe or Catholic countries or countries with a history of political oppression and turbulence or, you know, various explanations like this kind of founded in their histories. And I found that, um, I, th- I think that there are kind of many ways in which those explanations are persuasive, but ultimately I realized that I didn't find them satisfying as an explanation for the literature. So what it led me to instead was a way of critiquing the kind of um global history of the novel, and especially the idea that when we think of a global history of the novel, typically we're actually thinking of a British history of the novel and then everything else is kind of an, an anomaly or an effort to adapt or, you know, like the British history becomes the kind of template. And then all the other traditions are sort of seen through that lens and the work becomes to explain why their history of the novel is not like the British history of the novel. Um, so for instance, you know, in the Irish case, we would say, well, um, Irish literature did not develop a strong tradition of realism because it lacked a a meaningful kind of middle-class and because of colonialism and because of Catholicism and all these other forces, um, and I thought, well, wait a minute. You know, maybe maybe they they weren't even trying to do that, right? Why is, why is this the default model of what is happening? Um, so the the project of the book became to kind of read these two traditions alongside of each other and look at these moments where um, given texts were kind of deviating from the standard or the norm. And it, by reading them alongside each other, we kind of shed that notion of anomaly or strangeness, and instead. Instead of asking, you know, why aren't these books doing something else? We can start to think about what are these books doing? How can we read them? You know, how can we kind of be attentive to the specificity of their form? Um, So then the project of the book was just a a series of kind of close readings of various pairs of fictions um, and thinking about what they were doing um, that was not necessarily realism, but maybe something else that turned out to be interesting. Mm
0: -hmm. So you kind of hinted this at the start, and I, you know, I, I very much read your book as a historian rather than a, a literary person, and there is this kind of um, synchronicity that that Ireland and Poland have, right? They they lose independence, so they lose state sovereignty at the end of the eighteenth century. They spend the nineteenth century trying to get it back, um, and then towards the end of World War One, they do get it back. Um, so there's obvious like parallels between both countries, but I was, I'm wondering. What other countries you could have compared Irish literature to?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of this is a question of um, you know when I when I first started working on it, then um, there there was one article that I found that compared Poland and Ireland and the Kingdom of Sicily. So there is some potentially some historical parallels there. Um, some people said, "Well, what about Spain? You know, Spain has this kind of multicultural peripheral." You know, so there was potentially Spain. Um, then I also started thinking about Yiddish literature as a kind of minoritized literature within Europe, and and then people are like, "Well, what about you know South America?" And so you know, there are many different directions one could go if you wanted to find another kind of term for comparison. There are options. It, it just depends on what your specific focus is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and of, of those various examples you gave, other than Yiddish literature, they all seem to be fairly Catholic. Yes. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering, um, you know, Catholicism seems to always hang in the background of a lot of these writers that you're writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, but they never seem to become a major concern. Um, and, and therefore, they're never a major concern of yours. But, but how much did religion matter for these people, for these oh. writers?
1: You know, I think that probably it mattered a lot to the writers, um, and I'm sure that there are ways to kind of read it within the works of literature as well, right? I mean, you know, the the kind of obvious example perhaps is is in the chapter on the Gothic, because you know, Catholicism is definitely a sort of major issue within Gothic literature. Um, but for, you know, for the earlier and the later chapters, I think that it, it is present, you know, it's part of the cultural fabric of the society, right? So it, in a way, it can't not be important. Um, but it, it, I didn't really have a lot to say about it, essentially, mm-hmm. I think that one could say many interesting things, probably, but I might not be the person to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, so maybe if I could kind of Followed something you said there. I mean, you have this chapter talking specifically about Gothic writing, and you look at, at Charles Maturin and Jan Potocki, um, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. But, but why do Ireland and Poland matter for the history of Gothic writing?
1: You know, um... I think that they matter to the history of Gothic writing because there's just lots of really good Gothic literature written in both places. So essentially that's kind of always my argument. Um, and that's essentially the, the argument of the book as well is, you know, when I'm, when I'm making a case for these texts and why one should read them, it's not that they are somehow, you know, important to the history of the novel, um, whatever that means, you know, by the end of the book, um, in the conclusion, I really start to question how we write a history of the novel at all um, and and why, you know, we count some works as important and others we don't. Um, so the case that I'm making always for the texts that I'm I'm kind of studying is just that they're interesting and worth reading, right? So in the same way, I would say, well, you know, I think that can you study Gothic literature and not study Irish or Polish texts? Maybe, but you'll have an impoverished view of it because there's just lots of good Gothic r- literature written in those places.
0: And would you say the same then about like utopian writing and colonial travel writing and Swift, that that he is he is useful, but not necessarily indispensable. But if you do without him, you're impoverished.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, when I when I was working on the Swift chapter, I just started reading lots and lots of different utopian texts and different works of travel writing. And, and so it seemed to me that he is a kind of central figure, um, especially perhaps in the way that um, I, I was reminded recently... This is maybe a, a U.S.-centric kind of perspective, but, but I was reminded recently of just how many children read Gulliver's Travels, um, which is to say that it really has kind of seeped into the popular imagination in in a lot of ways. And I think that there's something singularly bizarre about that in that, you know, I think it it kind of typically ends up taking like the most superficial aspect of the text of just like, Oh, he travels to these places and there are these strange creatures. Um, But it it does suggest that it's a book that kind of fuels people's imaginations and that they're still reading and thinking about Mm -hmm. um, at whatever level. So, you know, to me, it's like, okay, you, you have to, you have to engage it if you're thinking about those topics. Um,
0: I I also wonder how many children, read anything other than the first book of Gulliver's Travels. It's, it's yeah. always about Lilliput, never about right. the really, you know, the nasty pleat, like the the hoi- or how, however you pronounce it, right? right? These kind of disgusting people that he meets and the Yahoos and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Um,
0: so you have a chapter then talking about Ireland and Poland as kind of case studies for queer writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you seem to understand queerness both in like the, the conventional um, sexual sense, but also in, in terms of cultural hybridity. Uh-huh. Um, that these are places that are kind of trapped between East and West. Um, they're they're European and yet somehow see themselves as colonized at the same time. Um, so what what do Ireland and Poland do for for the broader history of of queer literature?
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know the this chapter um, is is on Oscar Wilde and Marta Zajmiakowska, and part of what I was wrestling with as I was reading it was the, or as I was writing it rather, was the way that um, when we think about queer literature, on the one hand, we are literally talking about sexuality, but then we're also not talking about sexuality. And we're just talking about kind of experimental play or form. And there is a sense that those things are connected. But again, it's not always clear how. Um, And in a way, um, my my frustration with historicism or um, historicist criticism is that it, it can make overly neat connections between two things. Um, and paradoxically, then, perhaps, what I was wrestling with with queer studies was the way that it, it sometimes insists on a connection, and other times seems far more open-ended. Um, so in, that, in this chapter, I really wanted to kind of um, think about exactly what I meant by queer, right? And whether the the queerness of these texts was specifically related to the sexuality of the authors, or if it was a feature of the form, or if it was something about kind of form and desire or, you know, what, what it was doing. Um, so, I mean, again, I would say that I think that um, there are ways in which um, the, I think in both Polish and Irish traditions, we see a ton of kind of experimentation with form in ways that it's very tempting to call queer. Um, We also probably in part because of the Catholicism um, see a lot of work that is kind of wrestling with problems of sexuality um, and heteronormativity and queerness. So again, I think that, yeah, there, there are definitely ways that um, in I think these two traditions, a lot of those different kind of registers get collapsed um, into one or or the, the sort of formal play indexes both sexuality and the kind of cultural hybridity and other issues at once.
0: And, and in, in the Polish case, does this ever become racialized? Because it, in Ireland, that seems to be very much a part of, of a kind of an anxiety that, that particularly Irish nationalists have about, about the, the sort of racial identity of the Irish and, and where they can be placed globally.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that in Poland... Um, I don't know that we would use the term race exactly as something like, um, you know, ethnicity or, um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word race specifically, but it, there definitely is a kind of um, concern about Polish identity and whether it is, you know, sort of Eastern, whether it is European, you know, where, where we fit. Um, yeah. I mean, I I think now there are sort of all kinds of contemporary conversations happening about race in Poland, where Poland has historically imagined itself as white. And now increasingly with kind of waves of immigration, it's that's becoming more complicated as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And, you know, again, also here, you know, Polish Jewish history, um, I wouldn't I would think about that more in terms of kind of religious and ethnic identity rather than racial identity, Right. But that's sure. also a, a kind of, you know, it's also a, a controversial or, or intense sort of site of anxiety and debate.
0: I wonder if this is just one of the things that makes Ireland and Poland quite different Then that. That Irish people, because they are Anglophone or increasingly Anglophone in the 19th century, are just plugged into American and British discourses about race in ways that Polish people are not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that this is you know, one of the things that is happening in present day Poland, I think, is a, is a real kind of resistance to some of those discourses, right? Um, and a sense of, of them being, you know, I mean, this is more visible in issues of gender and sexuality, but also in issues of race, of whether they're, these are kind of outside discourses that are coming in and, and politicizing things that shouldn't be politicized, etc. Um, so I, I do think that... Um, There, there is an argument to be made that the anglophone kind of context of Ireland does mean that it it fits into those conversations more readily, where poles can still have more of a distance to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, So you end by talking about Beckett, um, and I'm kind of there's always a kind of a maybe a tension in terms of how we understand him as a writer. Um, Is he an Irish writer, or is he just a kind of European writer, which really Mm -hmm. just means. Mm You know, he, he's in France writing in French. Um, <laughs> why, why end with him? And and how much do you how much do you care about th- those kind of questions at all?
1: Yeah, uh, this was you know I, I found <laughs> as I was writing. So I'll answer the the why end with Beckett. Um, there there are two things there. One is that. Um, you know the the structure of the book was such that each chapter is a pair of authors. So for any author I wanted to write about, I had to find their counterpart in the other tradition. Um, so there was actually another chapter that I, I thought about writing or that I wanted to write. Um, and and ended up not doing um, on twentieth century authors, and then I even considered potentially writing a twenty first century chapter and having really contemporary authors. But in all of those cases, um, they 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 just didn't sort of fit quite as well. I think that the the current kind of chapters as they stand, there really are incredibly kind of persuasive and compelling parallels between the authors Mm -hmm. in ways that I couldn't quite make work for other ones. Um, Beckett and Gombrowicz were also a good place to end, um, in part because the, the formal experimentation of those authors is so kind of extreme in comparison to some of the earlier ones. You know, as I as I write, um, at the beginning of the chapter, it's sort of a moment where an interest in abstraction really takes you into just completely different worlds, right? It's 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 worlds of like complete impossibility or surrealism or you know worlds where thing it's it's no longer a recognizable kind of world as we know it in the same way that the other texts are. Um, this question of whether Beckett is an Irish writer, one could make the same argument about Gombrowicz in that Gombrowicz left Poland famously in 39 and never came back. Um, but he also did write in Polish the whole time, which helps. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but you know, people make the same argument about Jan Potocki in the previous chapter because he wrote in French always. Um, and as I discovered kind of to my surprise, most French kind of histories of the novel will include him and claim him as a French author where, you know, as being Polish, I was like, what, what are you, what are you talking about? Of course he's not. Right. Um, but the, the, which is to say that this problem, you know, is, is in a way kind of manifests to various degrees in, in each of the chapters of whether these authors should be considered Polish or Irish, strictly speaking. Um, and, and part of the, the kind of decision that I came to was that um, certainly, you know, it seemed to me that they are they are authors who are read and claimed by those traditions, even if they might also be claimed by other ones. Um, and if you really start to get into arguments of who should be counted as this or that national tradition, you get into these kind of essentializing, like, well, were you born there? How much time did you spend there? You know, which language? And I, I just thought... I. I don't really want to get into all of those debates. I'm, you know, I think that they are debatable, but I hope that at least I have kind of persuasively made the case that one can read them as Polish or Irish. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So
0: if I could go back to this thing of like basically where you could have ended and that you could have come up to today, um, all of the the kind of the couples that you're looking at, you know, this Polish writer or an Irish writer in some ways or another, they're all writers who are, Kind of questioning the notion of novels um, or kind of interrogating the very idea of what a novel can or cannot do mm-hmm. and i know that that joe cleary for instance has made an argument that that irish novels become a lot more a lot less internationally interesting in the second half of the 20th century when they become realist uh-huh. uh and that that the writers that are really big in ireland in the second half of the 20th century are kind of ignored internationally like john mcgohern or, mm-hmm. or edna o'brien Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe more so MacGahill. O'Brien has an international following. I think that would be unfair. But was that a concern for you that, that these novels just like later 20th century or even nearly 21st century novels are just not as kind of interrogatory about the very idea of novel of the novel as a form?
1: Yeah, I mean, in that uh, because that was the the thing that I was particularly interested in, or tracking. Um, yes, although then you know later on, I guess in the twenty first century, maybe you could you could make the argument that that some of that kind of formal experimentation comes back, right? So, like, I considered potentially um, having a chapter on the butcher boy and this Polish novel. Um, polska snow I think the the English translation I think is snow white Russian red or something like that and those are both I think formally experimental and kind of interesting texts but again the pairing wasn't as close but it is it's true that um, for much of the 20th century or the second half of it especially that that there is more of a kind of realist bent towards the end, perhaps, we could say that magical realism appears. And I also thought about, you know, engaging with that somewhat, but, but yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: And then you, you don't talk at all about James Joyce, um, Mm -hmm. who who obviously is someone who really cares about what a novel can or cannot do and is really interrogating it. Was that a conscious choice to just not talk about him?
1: Um, You know, again, because I, I was... I was, I didn't, there, there there's no pair of James Joyce. There's no common part in quite as, as neat a way, I would say um, in, in Polish fiction. So that was part of it. Um, I think also, you know, the prospect of of writing about Joyce is a little bit intimidating because there's, Mm -hmm. there's so much already there. Right. But, but we'll see, maybe someday. I mean, I'm, I'm teaching a Ulysses seminar next year. So, you know, I'll be back with the text and spending time with it again. So.
0: So maybe we'll end with could we end with that question of of what you'll do someday what what's next for you what are you working on now where do you plan to go
1: Yeah this is I'm I'm really um I'm trying to figure that out Um you know one thing that I a strange thing about this book is that it really does span from the 18th century to the 20th um and so I, you know, I think of myself as a comparative literature person, but I also am certainly not going to write another Polish-Irish comparison, right? Like that, that has, that's done with this book. Um, but I, I, do kind of work in primarily in Polish and Irish literature and also quite a bit in British. Um, and so, you know, trying to figure out exactly what my archive is and what my, my kind of formal interests are has been a challenge. Um, Lately, the the two things that I'm I'm sort of thinking about or or stuck with are one is a more 18th century project, which is um, thinking about kind of forms of worlding and, and world building in 18th century fiction. Um, I'm still, you know, in in thinking about the development of the novel. I think that increasingly I'm realizing the extent to which um, the archive for those conversations is 19th century fiction, and I I tend to think that. 18th century fiction is just so much more interesting in a lot of ways, um, because it is much more experimental and people are still trying to figure out, you know, how this kind of form works and what it can do. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking about kind of different um, projects of world building and and different ways of kind of trying to make fictions and philosophical fictions and and sort of the formal mechanics of that. So that is one potential project. But then the other thing that I've just been sort of stuck on is um, the Haitian revolution and specifically this contingent of Polish soldiers who were sent by Napoleon to, to fight, um, to put down the revolution, but then, while they were there suddenly realized that this is, you know, like, why are, why are we fighting to, to keep someone else from attaining independence? Like we want independence. What are we doing? So there's this kind of moment, um, where some of them decide, you know, they're not going to fight anymore, and and there are various kind of, you know, there's a there's a whole spectrum. I don't think any of them actually joined the other side, but but some of them refused to fight, and there was a variety of kind of positions taken. Um, but then also, you know, when independence was declared, they the Polish soldiers were given the option of staying on the island, and some of them did, and there is a kind of Polish Haitian community there to this day, and. So I'm just kind of fascinated by that and wanting to learn more about it and think about it. And so I'm hoping to maybe get into some archives and find out how this was written about in Poland at the time. Um, and, and this is kind of dovetailing with an interest just in how the Haitian Revolution was represented in the European press. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, the the Susan Buck Morris book about Hegel. Mm-hmm. um talks about the fact that, you know, we we think of these places as totally separate, but that it would have been written about in the newspapers, people would have been thinking about it and conscious of it. Um, so it seems to me like what I, from what I've seen in scholarship, there's kind of people writing um, from a Caribbean perspective, um, people writing from a European perspective, and, and some research from the Polish side, but it hasn't all been brought together. And so there, that is that is maybe something I want to do. I don't know. We'll
0: see. I mean that that really just kind of signposts towards a whole lot of fascinating questions about about racial identity and about how these discourses are moving around. Yeah. Um. And, mm-hmm. and I I mean I think it's it's a an Irish version of that would also be incredibly fascinating about yeah. what did the United Irishmen think of the Haitians? Um, right.
1: And I that is something I know nothing about, but I'm very curious about. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I'm, I have the exact same response. I, the, I would love to know more about that.
1: The, the problem, though, is that I am not an historian, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a literary scholar. So mm-hmm. the other question is like, well, was anybody writing fiction about this, perchance, that that could help me kind of um, have a way into some of this? So, so this is yeah, very still early kind of thinking stages of, of figuring out what's out there and what I could maybe write about
0: that all sounds wonderful um well thank you so much for this wonderful conversation thank you and as i mentioned uh professor barterzinska is the author of estranging the novel poland ireland and theories of world literature it's out now with johns hopkins university press and it's definitely worth reading thank you so much
1: thank you so much